Jack Kohatschek tells the story of a seminary professor of his who went to study in Israel. While he was there, he met a man who claimed to have memorized the Old Testament. And not only had he memorized the Old Testament, he claimed he had memorized it in Hebrew. And this professor thought, wow, I I have got to test this out. (laughs) So they met at the man's house a few days later and sat down, had coffee, and began to talk and relate to one another. And, And so the man said, I just, you made this claim and I have to It's so astounding to me that you've memorized the entire Old Testament, all 39 books, in Hebrew. I just, I have to know, I mean, can I see a demonstration? I said, sure. Where do you want to start? Uh, Well, now, this professor had made a significant study of the book of Psalms. He had really focused on wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And so he said, how about Psalm 1? The guy said, great. And he began to quote Psalm 1 in Hebrew, from memory. And then he did Psalm 2, and 3, and 4, and 5, and 6, and 7, and 8, and 9, and 10, and 11, and 12, and he just went for hours. And the man sat there with his Hebrew Bible, the Biblica Hebraica Stuttgartensia, that's the actual name, checking him, spot on, word for word, nailed it every time, perfect. And the guy was astounded. He said, This professor, I can't believe that you have accomplished this. He said, tell me, what has this done for your faith in God? I said, what do you mean? How has this impacted your relationship with the Lord? He said, oh, I'm an atheist. I, I I don't believe. How is it possible that someone could spend that much time with and in this book and not come to know the author? I don't have an answer for that question. But I sure don't want that to be true of me. I hope you don't want that to be true of you either. We're going to spend some time in in studying God's Word today. Open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Starting in verse 16, I want to thank you for being here today. I'm glad you're here. Uh, if it's your first time here, I would love to meet you. When we're all done, I'll be right down front down here. Please come down, say hi, introduce yourself. I want to shake your hand and then, uh, you know, um, greet you in person. Thank you for being here. If you're joining us online, thanks for logging in from wherever you are. I know we've got some folks on vacation, so we're glad you're joining us too. And um, we just encourage you to, to hang around and, and stay engaged uh, that way. If you're local, we'd love to have you come visit us uh, here on site. Um, We're going to be continuing our sermon series today called Armored, and this series is about helping you defend your faith with passion and precision. Today we're talking about defending scripture. Our starting point today, we're going to look at a few other passages, but this one verse or two verses is going to be kind of our main, uh, you know, anchor point today. This is something that the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, about the Bible. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 16. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
The core assertion of the Bible is that it is the very words of God himself. Here's what I want to tell you today. This is our big idea. We must defend scripture because God has revealed himself to us in it. And that record is reliable. Each week in this series, uh, except next week, uh, we have a special speaker, Dr. Jay Weil is going to be here next Sunday to talk about defending creation. You do not want to miss that. Uh, be here, ask off work, you know, tell the grandkids, tough, I'll see you later. Whatever you got to do, you want to be here next Sunday. But we're going to be talking today, it follows the same structure. So here's what's true, here's why that matters, here's what to do about it, here's how. All right, that, that's, I call this my practical apologetic. Uh, so here's what's true, here's why it matters, here's what to do about it, here's how. So let's start with what's true today. The, the essence of what's true is essentially a chain reaction of truths. It, it works like this. Well, okay, if this is true, then that is true. And if that is true, then the other is true. Okay? This is called, the, the philosophers call that a logical syllogism. But it, this, it's just it's kind of a chain reaction of truths. So there are three things here, three truths that we need to be aware of. Here's the first one. Number one, Scripture is reliable. Scripture is reliable. You can trust that, that what you have had passed on to you in this book is reliable. You can depend on the fact that the Bible you hold is an accurate representation of the original document. In biblical studies, they call that the autograph. Okay, And it's not like getting a signature from a famous person. It, it, the autograph in biblical studies refers to the physical copy that, you know, Moses or David or Isaiah or Matthew or Paul actually wrote. All right, it, it's that, it's, the autograph is the original. It's the one that they actually wrote. And you probably need to know this. By the time of Paul, there were actually kind of sort of two of them. What he would do is he'd hire someone, he'd, he'd make up his notes, and then he'd hire someone to make a fair copy, one that's really good, uh, good handwriting, and, and then they'd make another copy of that. So that, this is, of course, this is way before Xerox. This is way before your sent folder in your email, okay? So they'd send off the copy, it might be six months before it got there. And then it'd be another six months before the reply came back. So you needed to keep a copy of what you wrote so that you'd know when they ask you a question, like, what was I talking about? Do you ever do that? Someone says, hey, what about this? I don't even know what I said. You know, um, so it, it, that's the way it works. So they're, they're, but this is the original. This is the one where Paul says, especially you see at the end of his letters, I write this greeting to you in my own hand. That's him physically signing it. That's the autograph, okay? L let me put it to you this way. You can be sure that the Bible you hold accurately records the revelation of God as originally seen and heard by the people to whom it happened. So how did that process happen? How do we know that what we're looking at and studying every Sunday and hopefully every other day of the week is an accurate representation of what Moses and David and Isaiah and Matthew and Paul actually wrote? Well, one significant piece of evidence to teach us that our Bible is reliable has to do with the available number of New Testament manuscripts. What we discover when you look at this is that there are more available manuscripts of the New Testament than any other document from antiquity. In addition to these New Testament manuscripts, there are over 86,000 quotations from the New Testament in the writings of the early church fathers. In fact, there are enough quotations from the early church fathers that even if we did not have a single copy of our Bible, 
scholars could reconstruct the New Testament in all but 11 verses because it's been quoted that many times in those writings from 1, 2, and 300 A.D. Those are what we call the early church fathers and all the sermons that they wrote and all the letters that they wrote. We could reconstruct the New Testament minus 11 verses just because there's so many quotations. Not only do we have a ton of copies available to us, but we also have a very short time span between when the events recorded in the New Testament happened and when the documents that record them were written down. I want you to understand this. The time span is shorter for the New Testament than any other document from antiquity. When you start digging into this and you look into the reliability of the Bible, and we're focusing specifically on the New Testament because it, it bears witness to Jesus. The Old Testament uh, is obviously older. Um, it doesn't quite hit this standard, but it's very close. But the, the time span is really different. In fact, there's strong evidence to suggest that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke uh, were written within 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. The Gospel of John was written before the end of the first century. I want to show you a chart. We're going to put some, some data up on the screen. Uh, I, it won't offend me at all if you take out your camera and, and take a picture of it uh, because uh, it'll, it's a little tough to recreate this in your notes. Um, we probably didn't give you enough room today. Uh, I want to look at some other ancient documents from history. All right? First thing up is the Tetralogies by Plato. These were written, the philosopher Plato, you know, uh, these were written somewhere between uh, 427 uh, and 347 BC. We don't know exactly when in his life he wrote that, all right? The earliest copy we have is 900 AD. That's the oldest copy, the closest to the original. That's a time span of 1,200 years between when it was written and the oldest copy we've got, and then we have seven copies. No modern scholar debates that these are actually something that Plato said and wrote. Everybody, they're all okay with that. Right, every, all the academics are like, oh yeah, that's, that's legitimate. He really wrote that. Okay? Let's look at another one. This is the, the Annals by the Roman historian Tacitus, written uh, roughly 100 AD. So this, I mean, he, he actually references the church and, and Jesus and some of those things. Uh, the earliest copy is 1100 AD. That's a time span of 1,000 years between when it happened and the oldest copy we've got, we have 20 copies. Not bad. Actually, by way of ancient documents, that's pretty good. Here's, here's the best attested document of the ancient world other than Scripture. Okay, it's, it's actually the Iliad by Homer. You know, the story of the Trojan War, all that stuff. Okay, The Iliad by Homer, roughly written 900 B.C. The oldest copy we have is 400 B.C. That's a 500-year gap. All right, We have 643 copies. That's awesome. And all the scholars in, you know, in antiquities and classics are like, oh yeah, that's, that, that's authentic, it's real, he wrote it, yes. <laughs> I love this next part. This is my favorite part. You want to see the New Testament? Check this out. Written between 40 and 100 AD. The earliest copy we've got is 125 AD. That's a time span of 25 years. We have 24,000 copies. What? That is awesome. That is incredible. And, and people still go, well, you can't trust the New Testament. Really? Because it absolutely blows every other document from antiquity out of the water. You can know for sure that the Bible you hold is a reliable copy of what was originally written. 
But what's it a copy of? Well, that's the second truth in this chain. The second thing is that Scripture is inspired. The Bible's inspired. Now, let's talk about what that means. Now, there are several views of inspiration. Some people think that, the, that God just dictated via mechanical dictation, that's the technical term, what he wanted the authors of the Bible to write, and they wrote it down word for word, the end. He just like, like a ticker tape in their head, you know, and they just wrote. Some people have that view of inspiration. Others kind of go all the way the other way. And they're like, yeah, God put a general impression of kind of an idea, sort of, kind of, in their heart, and they just figured out what they wanted to say, and they wrote it down. You know, I don't know that either one of those really helps. The first view um, does not take into account the vast difference in literary style that's present in the Bible. Even in the New Testament, when you read uh, the, you know, the Gospel of John, it's really simple. It's really basic. It's not, now it's profound, it's deep, but the language, the grammar is really simple. You know, John's a blue-collar guy. He's a hard-working dude. He's a fisherman. He doesn't have time for a ton of flowery language. He uses very simple concepts in very deep, profound ways because he's been thinking about it for a long time. John was written 90 AD. He's been chewing on this his whole life, okay? But then over here, you've got Luke. What did Luke do for a living? He was a doctor. Oh, my goodness. The vocabulary in Luke's gospel is crazy. It's off the charts. You've got to learn a bunch of new words to translate Luke. It really, they're just, stylistically, they're just different. And so with people who go that God just dictated into their head, could he have done that even and made the style different? Sure. But it just doesn't quite seem to fit. But the others who say, oh, well, it's just kind of, he just gave them a general impression. I don't think that works either because it doesn't take into account that these documents were, you know, the Bible as a whole written by more than 40 different people over a period of at least 1,500 years, maybe a lot longer. We don't know when Job was written down. Uh, the, the story that it records almost seems to be even before the flood, but we don't know when that was, that was written. Um, you know, it, there's this huge variety, and it all lines up. It all links up. There's, there's no contradictions. There's no, historically, it, it works. So this idea that they just kind of had a general idea from God, and they, ah, no, there's too much correspondence. And so my opinion, which is maybe more well-informed than the average bear, is that the truth is probably kind of in the middle of those two things. I think the Holy Spirit placed the ideas and thoughts, in, in some cases the exact words, in the minds of those writers, but that their books generally reflect their own style, their own way of writing. In other words, every thought in the Bible is inspired from God. Many of the individual words and phrases are inspired, authored by God, but sometimes the way that certain authors expressed it had a bit of their own nuance in it. So if Scripture is inspired... That means if God authored it, he breathed it. That's what 1 Timothy 3.16 says. All scriptures, God breathed. That means there's no mistakes, right? The scholars call this issue the inerrancy issue. Now, we don't have time to get it. That's a whole other sermon. <laughs> the short version is this. I agree with most theologically conservative scholars. I believe that the Bible is without error in its original transmission. That the autograph, the original copy, was absolutely inerrant. Um, now, there have been manuscripts that were made since, and every now and then, someone's writing is not real clear. This is before Times New Roman font, okay? Um, <laughs> this was the, these were the original Romans, <laughs> not the new ones. Um, so, you know, and sometimes it's, it's a blurred word, like, what is that? I don't know. Is it, you know, faith or faithful? Eh, it's hard to tell. 
And so that's where, that's where some of these differences come in. In other words, I believe that what Moses and David and Isaiah and Matthew and Paul wrote was without error. But in the time intervening, um, sometimes those manuscripts are difficult to read and understand. Uh, we do know for a fact, though, that nearly that, that, that uh, basically none of those differences change the meaning of the text. They're all little minor points of, was it this word or this word? And it's usually pretty, something pretty major. <laughs> you know, did he say and or also? Eh. You know, you know it, it doesn't change the meaning of the text at all. And I believe that God guided the transmission of his word to make sure that we had a copy without any error of truth or fact. I can say that. that the Bible is inerrant when it comes to the, uh, the issue of truth or fact. Here's the thing. The New Testament has almost no textual corruption. That term describes the difference, textual corruption describes the difference from the autograph to the copy. And it's basically non-existent in the New Testament. Listen to this. Only one half of 1%, 0.5% of the New Testament is in any doubt at all. And of this one half percent, no doctrinal or historical truth is left in question. There really are just minor little stylistic like... Yeah, is it this word or that word? It's kind of hard to tell. But no doctrine is in danger. No, no point of historical fact, like did Paul really go to this place? Was there really a place called, you know, uh, Galatia? Yeah, there really was, okay? Um, none of that is in doubt. And so that leads us to really to think of, to then go, go back to our comparison chart. Go back to the Iliad. The Iliad has about 5% textual corruption. Ten times more than the Bible. And no scholar the ancient, you know, who studies the classics is like that that's out of bounds at all. The, the national epic of India, uh, the Mahabharata, has about 10% of its text in doubt. And so that really leads us to another link in the chain. If we have a reliable copy of an inspired text that's without error, well then the next truth is this, the Bible is authoritative. The Bible's reliable, the Bible's inspired, and thirdly, the Bible is authoritative. The ultimate authority for any Christian is the Bible. The passage we just looked at in 1 Timothy is proof of that. The text says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, that's the only time in the whole New Testament that that phrase appears. It is unique to 1 Timothy 3, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3.16. So what is it? It's, it's hard to then, like, I can't compare it with anything else. There's no other place where that word is used to know exactly what Paul was getting at there uh, by, by God breathed. I, I was thinking about it. I was like, what, what would that be like? Like, how would we put that into our uh, vernacular where we could understand what that means? And I think it would be like this. Let's say that, that you're out and about or you're working in your yard or you're at your job and Jesus appears right next to you. And you know it's Jesus. Because white robe, blue sash, sandals, long hair, beard, the whole outfit, it's Jesus, okay? You know it's him. And he leans over and he whispers in your ear and he tells you something he wants you to do. You going to do it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's Jesus. He breathed what he wants you to do into your ear. How is this any different? And I don't know about your Bible, but mine has words, his words in red. You want a devotional challenge? You just go through it just for your private devotions. Just read the red. Read the words of Jesus. Just start in Matthew. 
and just read what's read. It'll change your life. It's God breathed. He spoke it to you. And it carries the same authority as if Jesus himself whispered in your ear. And that really leads us then to talk about why this matters. Again, there are several dependent truths here, kind of a chain reaction. If the Bible's reliable and inspired and authoritative, then there are three truths that follow from those things. So if the Bible is reliable, then truth number one, then the Bible's always right. You can trust it. Now, there are two factors that come into play. First of all, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you can't trust the Bible because it's full of mistakes or contradictions or mistranslations. And I have a two-word response for you when you hear someone say that. Maybe somebody you work with, maybe a family member, maybe some you know, clown on the internet, I don't know, whatever. Uh, when you hear somebody say that, here's your two-word response. Prove it. You can make that claim. Now you have to prove it. Because it holds up. It stands against all the criteria applied to any other ancient document. And it does it so far beyond what most other documents from the ancient world have to stand up to. The burden of proof is on you, my non-believing friend. Prove it. Show me. Where is it mistranslated? Where is the contradiction? Because a contradiction is when one text affirms what another text denies. Here's, academically speaking, here's a contradiction. The sky is blue, the sky is not blue. That's a contradiction. A a, a contradiction is not the sky is blue, the sky is teal. That's not a contradiction. And you do have some of those kinds of statements in the Bible. One says this, one says that. You know, one of the Gospels says there were two angels at the empty tomb. One says one. It's not a contradiction. He's only, one just talking about the one. Yeah, there happened to be two, but only one spoke. So we just talk about the one, okay? That's not a contradiction at all, right? So, so they have to prove it. The Bible's always right. Secondly, the second truth there is that your choice in translation is part of this issue, okay? Um, you need to use an accurate translation that you understand. People will say, what's the best translation to use? Uh, the one you read every day. <laughs> That's the best translation for you, uh, you know, and you need to use one that you can understand. If you really struggled uh, in your high school literature class with the, the unit on Shakespeare, I would not recommend the King James. They were written about the same time. You, you probably need to pick a different translation. But if you dig that, if you're into Shakespeare, yeah, use the King James. It's, it's great. I want to show you a chart, okay? Look at this. Uh, these are different types of Bible translations. I know that a lot of the text, for, especially for you guys in the balcony, is probably way small. Um, But way over on the left, you've got word for word. In the middle is thought for thought. And then on the right, they say paraphrase. And you might even want to translate, you know, that that could be uh, feeling for feeling. So the idea is way on the left is uh, word for word. Like it just Greek word to English word, all right? And over there, so you've got the King James Version. You've got the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible. Those are the more kind of word for word, literal translations. In the middle, kind of thought for thought, we're conveying the same thought, using a lot of the same words, but not necessarily tied to it. That NIV lands right in the middle, so that's why I preach from it. It's dead smack in the middle of the chart. That's, that's, is it the best translation? In some verses, yes. In other verses, not so much, but it's right in the middle, okay? And then way on the, par- in the paraphrase are kind of the, I'm gonna, I want to make you feel the same thing the original authors would have felt. On the, way, the one on the way far right is the message, <laughs> by Eugene Peterson. Great translation. It's great for devotions, not super awesome for study, okay? Um, You know, the Living Bible would be over there. Uh, So just to kind of give you an idea, you need to use one that you understand, 
and, and understanding that the Bible is right. If you're using a really loose paraphrase, it's going to be really hard to pro- for you to prove to your skeptical friend that the Bible is right because it, yeah, the words are not going to line up to the original text, okay? That's why this matters. Here's the second thing. Uh, the Bible tells us who God is. If the Bible's inspired, then what we're talking about here is the concept of revelation, not the book of revelation, not the last book of your Bible, but the concept of revelation, that God has revealed himself to us in this book. It tells us who God is. Now, Scripture, the Bible, is a record of God's revelation. It tells us when and how God revealed himself in history. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah you know, we looked at it just a few weeks ago in our series on Abraham, the word of the Lord came to Abram, okay? It's that idea, it's a record of revelation. It tells us when and how God revealed himself. But scripture is also revelation from God. So it's a record of revelation, but it also is revelation from God. It tells us who God is. He reveals himself to us in this book. In John 5, 39, Jesus is critiquing the Jewish leaders because they study the scriptures, but they don't see that he is who he said he is. And Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. (laughs) That the Bible reveals who God is. It tells us who God is. When you read your Bible, you should be able to come to know its author. It's so cool when an author interacts with his readers. I saw something this week that blew me away. One of my favorite writers uh, is a fantasy author named Brandon Sanderson. Uh, He's just an incredible author. Eventually, time will put him up there with guys like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, He's just, he's just incredible. But he does a great job interacting with his fans. He's currently writing a series of novels called The Stormlight Archive. Uh, the third book in, out of ten, they're about this thick, is due out in November, and I'm pretty stoked about it. But there's a symbol that goes with these books. And he's driving, I don't, think, I don't know if you can see it, but the white car has that symbol, the sticker, on their back window. And he's driving, and he took a picture of it, and he posted it on Facebook. He says, if this is you driving the white Subaru Outback while bearing a stormlight symbol through American Fork, Idaho, where he lives, hi. <laughs> like, and the, the guy who, who saw this freaked out. He's like, that's awesome! My favorite book, and the author's talking to me! The author is revealing himself to you in this book. In the book, you can come to know the author. Which leads us then to the next truth. (laughs) The Bible is greater than your opinion. The Bible outranks you every time. If the Bible's authoritative, then it always gets to outrank your opinion. And I've met way too many people who treat this book like a buffet. (laughs) Take a little of this, a little of that, a little of this, I'm good. But what about that? Oh, I don't like that. That's not how this works. (laughs) This is not a buffet. This is a seven-course banquet prepared by a master chef. When you go to a banquet prepared by a master chef, you don't turn up your nose and say, oh, I don't like that. At the height of her fame as the other woman in the Donald and Ivana Trump breakup, Marla Maples talked about her religious upbringing in an interview. 
She said she believed the Bible, she said. And then she added the disclaimer to the interviewer. But, but you can't always take it literally and be happy. While I would agree that many passages in the Bible are intended to be interpreted figuratively, not literally, that's not what she means. <laughs> what she means is there are parts of it that make me uncomfortable, parts of it that tell me to do things I don't want to do, and I'd rather just ignore them. And you don't get to do that. Because if this book really is what it claims it is, if it is God-breathed, it outranks you every single time. And this matters because the Word of God will change your life. As the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So what do we do about it? I think there are two simple answers to that question. First of all, read and study to understand God. You read and study it to understand God. If God has revealed himself to us in Scripture, the best place to find him is there. And that's why Bible translation matters so much, my friends. That's why Chapel Rock has sent hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years to pioneer Bible translators. I want to show you something. This is something we have uh, in our missions office. This is the first, uh, not the first, it's the first printing. I don't know if it's the very first copy to come off the press. But it's the first printing of the New Testament in the Kire language in Papua New Guinea. This was the very first full New Testament that was printed to the peoples of Papua New Guinea. It has probably more uh, linguistic diversity than any other place on earth. More dialects and languages concentrated in one spot than any place else. And because Chapel Rock has been partners with Pioneer for so long, and we've sent literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to them over the years, uh, we actually have a copy of the very first New Testament in the, in the Kire language. And, and you look at it, and it, it looks like English, but I can tell you this is not English. <laughs> I have no idea what that's saying. Uh, Book of Zone, chapter 18. No clue. Um, but it's really cool to see that they, they received a copy of the Bible in their language. That's why. So when we read and understand the Bible, uh, we're, we're really understanding who God is. The, the second thing that we need to do about this is that when you read and understand the Bible read and study the Bible, you come to understand yourself. You see yourself. As we apply the Bible to ourselves, we grow in self-understanding. Again, go back to 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, boy, I need that sometimes, correcting, yep, my worldview sometimes gets messed up, I need to be corrected, and training in righteousness. When I understand the unrighteous places in my life and I see them reflected in Scripture, I go, wow, here's an area of my life that doesn't conform to the standard God has given me. I need to make a change. <laughs> scripture trains us. When we read and understand, when we read and study the Bible, it helps us understand ourselves. St. Mark the ascetic, not the gospel author, this guy lived a couple hundred years later in the desert, he is known to have said this, a humble man who lives a spiritual life, when he reads the Holy Scriptures, will relate all things to himself and not to others. Have you ever done that? Read a verse in the Bible and went, oh man, that got me right there. I hope you have. I hope you've had that experience. It's good for you. Because far too often we do the other thing, don't we? We read a verse in the Bible and we go, I know somebody needs to read that. And you know God is in heaven looking down going, you. Um... 
you do. So how do you do this? Well, let's talk about how we do this. How do we read and study and understand the Bible so that we can come to know the author and so that we can defend it to a skeptical world? I want to give you a couple methods of Bible study today. Uh, guys, there are so many of these. I'm not kidding. You could do a different Bible study every year for the rest of your life and not exhaust them all. There's so many different ways to go about this task. I want to give you two today. The first one is John Wycliffe's rules for studying the Bible. Okay? Do you remember in the You Ask For It series, one of the videos before the sermon was, if you could meet anybody from history, who would it be? And I said in the video, John Wycliffe. He's the first guy to really translate the Bible into English, our language. Now, the, the English that John Wycliffe spoke in the late 1400s is very different than the English you and I speak today. It'd be very difficult for you to read some of his actual, what, what he you know, printed. But it's after the invention of the printing press, and, and, and it really it made, a, it made a vast difference. You ought, to, you ought to get down on your knees every day and thank God for John Wycliffe, because he gave his life for that cause. He was burned at the stake for his belief, and for his willingness to translate the Bible into the language of the common people. And, and, and then that, that wasn't good enough, and they dug up his bones later and burned them again. People were mad at this guy. So every day, you can open up a, an English Bible and read it, you better thank God. And he had a method for studying the Bible. Let me give this to you. Here's his first rule. Obtain a reliable text. Now remember, he's working off the Greek and Hebrew. So what he's talking about is getting a good manuscript. In your case, you already have the Bible in your language. If you want to learn Greek and Hebrew, I can point you in the right direction. It's a lot of work, trust me. Um, but the main thing for you is read a good translation. Get one that works for you, that you understand, that you engage with. Okay. The second rule is this. Understand the logic of Scripture. That's the principle of hermeneutics. Hermeneuo is the Greek word. It means I interpret. Okay, so it means understand how scripture works. You should not interpret Bible prophecy the same way you interpret the historical books. They're different. And you need to understand that, you know. And you know this, you, you don't read the newspaper differently than you read a Tom Clancy novel. I mean, if you did, you'd be freaking out all the time. We're all going to die. Jack Bauer's coming in. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it, we know that this is different. So it's, it's understand the logic of Scripture. Number three, compare the parts of Scripture with one another. That's the context issue. It's, it's just learning how to do that. Learning, the best interpreter of the Bible is, believe it or not, the Bible. So learning how to understand Scripture with itself. Compare parts with one another, you know. Uh, number four is maintain an attitude of humble seeking. That's talking about prayer there. Can I tell you how to start your Bible study every, no matter what method you use, no matter how you do this, here's how you ought to start every time you pick up a Bible and read it. God, would you speak to me through your word today? That, that ought to be the first thing out of your mouth every time you pick up a Bible. It's this readiness to hear and understand and obey God. God, would you speak to me from this so that I can obey It's that humble seeking. And the fifth one is to, to receive instruction in this, of the Spirit. And that's this idea of obedience and application. To, to know that, okay, God is speaking to me. Remember, we talked about the whole God breathe thing? Jesus whispering in your ear? He's speaking to you. <laughs> Think about this. If Jesus just appeared to you in the car, in the seat next to you, you're on your way to work, and Jesus just, poof, he's right there. He can do that, remember? From post-resurrection accounts, he can just appear in a place. Poof, he's right there. And he goes, hey, turn left. Nah, I'm going right. <laughs> 
you know, you cut through traffic and people are, you know, giving you all kinds of various finger salutes. And, you know, Jesus said, turn left. I did it. Um, so we receive instruction in the Spirit, right? It's obedience and application. The, John Wycliffe said, to be ignorant of the Scriptures is to be ignorant of Christ. There's another way to read the Bible, and, and it really has come to be one of my favorites. You got a, uh, a handout in your bulletin today. Uh, there's a, a card in there. I want to show you this. Um, this is something I came up with a while ago. I think it's original to me. I've not seen it anywhere else. Uh, these are bookmarks. So you can take this home and cut these out. And, and this is a method that I use for my daily devotions. I've done lots of different stuff. You know, there are a lot of different things. I won't have time to get into all of them. But this is what I do, okay? And what I did is just kind of divide the Bible up into five major chunks. So the red one there, and these aren't color-coded for any particular reason other than it makes it pop and stand off, off the page so I can find it better. Um, but the red one is the law and history sections. Right? That's Genesis to Esther. Then you've got the wisdom literature. That's Job to Song of Songs. The, the prophets, that's Isaiah to Malachi. The gospels, that's Matthew to John. And the letters, Acts, is actually written as a letter. Right? It starts off you know, to Theophilus. And then Revelation is also a letter. You've got these letters to the seven churches. It's a letter to the church. Okay? So, so all these things are, they're all letters. They're structured a little. Some are more historical, some are more apocalyptic, but they're letters, basically. And what I do is you just stick one in each section and you just work your way through a chapter in each every day. Probably take you about 20 minutes. 20 minutes with God, not a bad way to start the day. Or end the day, if that's more your rhythm. But, but you just, you, you work your way through chapter in each. And so, you know, on, on the Sundays that you're, you know, on the, or on the days that you get to Psalms, it might go pretty quick. The day you hit Psalm 119, it will not go quick. It's very long, okay? Some of those chapters at the end of Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're long. Uh, some of the ones in Matthew are long. Uh, it, it's just a great way to engage with Scripture. Now, here's the cool benefit about this. You will start to see connections and the interrelatedness of the Bible in a way that you, you never knew before. It's so cool. It doesn't happen every time. And I can't promise this will happen every time because it won't. But sometimes God orchestrates it so that a, a, a principle that you read in the law lines up with uh, some wisdom from the wisdom literature which then leads on into a, a promise about Jesus in the prophets, which you read about its fulfillment in the Gospels, and then you read about the explanation of it in the letters, and it all lines up, and for just a moment, the gray curtain of this world is pulled away, and you get a glimpse of the glory and the majesty and the power of God to speak to the human heart through his word, and it will blow you away and knock you to your knees in worship. This is powerful. This is powerful. Pastor Sevalod Leitkin from Siberia spoke at a church in Minneapolis, Minnesota about 20 years ago. And he described his personal journey to faith in Jesus Christ. His parents were atheists. They were both professors at a university in Siberia. And they raised their son to think for himself. During his teen years, he struggled with a lot of spiritual questions. When the communists told him there is no God, he thought for himself, and reasoned, they can't possibly know that for sure. They can't possibly say that nowhere in the universe exists a being that we would call omnipotent, omnipresent, and, uh, you know, the, the three O's, <laughs> omniscient. Um, and so he said, I'm going to check this out. 
Well, his atheistic communist university, the only books they had on religion were critical of religion. But they would often quote the Bible to mock it. And he began to go and find those books and copy those verses into a notebook. And his best find ever was an encyclopedia of religion that had massive sections of the New Testament quoted. And he would write those verses down. He would copy them into his notebook. And it was not very long before he began to pray to God and ask him to forgive his sins because he read about it in the Bible. Do you hear me today? God has revealed himself in Scripture, and so we must defend Scripture because God revealed himself to us in it, and we can trust that that record is reliable. Man, praise God for his words. Do you understand? We have this in a language that we can understand. Some people around the world are still waiting for theirs, but you have the word of God, his revelation to you in a language that you can read and understand every day. This blows my mind. This is so amazing. This calls for song. Would you stand with me as we sing together today?